Hey y'all, Casey here, listening from a beach on Nantucket Island, trying to teach myself the ukulele. I'm on a bit of a sabbatical, soaking up all the synchronous moments the universe has to offer. Big fan of all your content. I too am an avid water sports fanatic. Actually just recently hit my deepest dive on my 29th birthday, 33 meters. It was such a vulnerable and humbling experience. I fully appreciate your curiosity and have loved the evolution of the content lately. Keep it up and thank you. Thank you for sending that in, Casey. What is up, everyone? I hope that you are all having a fantastic day from wherever it is that you are listening to my voice. I hope that you are practicing good posture, whether you are listening to this podcast while driving, trimming weed, or cooking a nice filet mignon. Someone once told me that practicing good posture looks like you have an imaginary string attached to the top of your head, and it is lengthening you out. And I always liked thinking about it that way. I just got back from a little jaunt down to Mexico where I chased that last run of South Swells with some friends. I am eternally grateful to my longtime surf sponsor, Patagonia, for allowing me to go on these adventures. Um, I then was home for one day and did a hiking trip out to the Sierras with my dad. My 71-year-old dad, he made it eight miles through part of the Pacific Crest Trail with me down to a secluded lake with no one around. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, it feels good. I feel like I'm finally getting my, my travel kits in order. And I'm learning that to go on adventures, it takes having a few of these these kits ready to go. So when you decide that you're going to go camping, boom, 10 minutes, you are out the door. I recently hosted a couple short videos for Surfer uh, Magazine on my travel essentials, what I take to warm water destinations, what I take to cold water destinations, and I posted those videos on my Patreon page, so if you're interested in checking those out, you can click the link below this episode where I say buy me a cup of coffee on Patreon, and even if you don't want to donate to the podcast, you can check out the videos. I'm reading a great book right now that probably 10 people recommended to me, and the book has been sitting on my shelf for the last six months, and I finally opened it. The book is Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life by William Finnegan, and I dig it. Uh, as soon as I finish it, I will most likely put it on my book club that's where i put all of my favorite reads so you can head over to kyle.surf slash book club to check out what i've been reading i will uh give you a paragraph from barbarian days right now surfing always had this horizon this fear line that made it different from other things certainly from other sports i knew you could do it with friends, but when the waves got big or you got into trouble, there never seemed to be anyone around. 
Everything out there was disturbingly interlaced with everything else. Waves were the playing field. They were the goal. They were the object of your deepest desire and adoration. At the same time, they were your adversity, your nemesis, even your moral enemy. The surf was your refuge, your happy hiding place, but it was also a hostile wilderness, a dynamic, indifferent world. At 13, I had mostly stopped believing in God, but that was a new development, and it had left a hole in my world, a feeling that I had been abandoned. The ocean was like an uncaring God, endlessly dangerous, power beyond measure." Whew. I love reading good writers. God damn, William Finnegan. I'm going to have to get you on the podcast. All right. I'm going to get this one going. This is with the CEO of Surfrider, Chad Nelson. He is a good dude. Uh, he made time for me as I was heading back up from Mexico. Um, I stopped by his spot in Laguna Beach. And this was just one of those easy podcasts. Um, he is magic on the mic, and I would love to get him back on. Chad and Surfrider are one of my favorite nonprofits fighting for our oceans. And I wrote this quote down that I wanted to read because it made me think of Chad and the work that he is doing. This is a quote by Margaret Mead. My greatest fear is that as we drift towards this blandly amorphous generic worldview, not only will we see an entire range of human imagination reduced to a more narrow modality of thought, but we will wake from a dream one day, having forgotten that there were even other possibilities. It's a powerful one. As surfers and uh, explorers of the natural world, we know that nature puts life into a more vivid view, and it shows us the possibilities not only of what is out there, but what we are capable of. And I love people like Chad who fight on behalf of nature, and thus fight on behalf of showing us our showing us our most uh, honest reflections of ourselves through nature. Right. That that is what we get from it. Ultimately, I know that that's a, a deeply esoteric and sloppy way to put it, but uh, he's doing good work. Get involved with Surfrider, and without further ado. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Chad Nelson. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. I did. Yeah? Yeah. 
I uh, I surfed my little local spot in Laguna Beach to remain nameless. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, Laguna's got these bunch of great little waves that are finicky, tide sensitive, direction sensitive, and um, so nobody comes and surfs them unless you live in town. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful spot. All of Southern California is really fun in South Swells. Um, I yeah, like coming. That's down our here. time. Yep, that's the time. Yeah, we went down. Got a couple fun waves in Mexico, and uh, there was like a whole week of swell. I'm tired yeah. now. Feels good. Surfed I th- out? I'm surfed out. I'm sunburnt and surfed out, which is a good <laughs> feeling to have. The best. Yeah, man. Um, and now it's uh, it, it's dying down, and are you getting back into work this week? Yep. I, in fact, I was up in L.A. Um, for a couple days at a conference I'll tell you about, mm-hmm. the National Caucus of Environmental Leaders, and got a couple days up there, too. I surfed Malibu and Topanga. So fun. Malibu's so. fun. So I split my time between Santa Cruz and Los Angeles, and I have a longboard that I keep down in Malibu that a local shaper named Travis Reynolds made yep. for me. Mm-hmm. It's brown. I call it the brown trout. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll take it out to Malibu. And just this year, I learned how to hang 10. Nice. The first time. It was a big uh, step in my surfing career. And I was, I've was i always been really surprised uh, by what a fun wave Malibu is. It's packed. but It is the, packed. But the, if you get a good one, it's one of the best waves in the world. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. The uh, speed of it is what's so unique. You can get on a wave and just... And it, it, it's one of those waves that holds its shape the whole time. And it, it'll even grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like Scorpion Bay has that too, where all of a sudden you're like, "Wait a second, this wave's getting bigger." I'm halfway down the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of points uh, in the LA area. Like it's it's really interesting topography in LA. There are a lot of those those uh, canyons that have formed. Yeah, river mouth uh, point river breaks. Mouth point breaks out there. So there's Topanga and there's Malibu and all those um, that I hadn't really explored before just the last couple of years because whenever I would come to Southern California, I would just blow right by down to San Clemente or something. Yep. Yeah, the only problem with it is, in my opinion, is you have got, whatever it is, 20 million people living in Los Angeles, and on a south swell, it's only that stretch from, like, sunset to county line that breaks. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think that's why it's crowded. Yeah, I uh, I bring my spearfishing gear down there, too, because it's flat a lot, but the water clarity is real nice, so mm-hmm. there's actually a little... Uh, spearfishing community down in LA that I've been able to connect with and have a good time down there. Yeah. And a lot of reef. Yep. And then up in Santa Cruz too, uh, Tyler Fox and I have been getting into it and nice going just South and, uh, shooting a couple rockfish and have a good, yeah. t- having a good time with it. Very cool. Yeah. Do you ever get into spearfishing? You know, it's funny. Uh, I was a lifeguard in Laguna beach in the, in the mid to late eighties and, um, got really into all water ocean sport i got certified to dive and i got into fishing and i got into spear fishing and uh at the time off right off laguna beach there was i'd go out with my buddies and we'd come back pretty frustrated uh we didn't see a lot of fish you know we'd go back and talk to the like older lifeguards and be like you know what are we doing wrong yeah and they would look at us and just say it's fished out and um it's so funny because i remember you know i was 16 17 18 and thinking just accepting it oh I guess fished out o- ocean empty. You yeah. Know, we, they, it's gone. They already caught all the fish. And, uh, it was actually one of the things that really influenced sort of my whole career and getting interested in, in surf rider and ultimately, you know, which was not very popular advocating for the Marine protected areas up and down the coast of California, because they were right. You look at those old pictures and the fish that people used to bring in here in the 60s and 70s, you could go out for two hours and guaranteed come back with dinner. 
Yeah. And, you know, we'd go out there and catch some barely legal, you know, calico bass, calico, and that was it. And we'd be like, this is it? So yeah. It actually kind of turned me off to spearfishing, sadly. My kids have gotten back into it now. I've got 16-year-old uh, identical twins, and they're out there, you know, outside the edges of this marine reserve, because Laguna is now a marine reserve. And they're yeah. finding fish. Well, and it's an example also of how uh, apathy is our greatest enemy, right? If that's yeah. fished out, it's not worth protecting anymore. It's gone. Yeah. And then you're not going to get involved. You're not going to do anything. Yeah. yeah. But it's and it's also an example of how you had to dive underneath the water to really learn about that ecosystem. I think one of the problems that we face as surfers is that we're on top of the water. Yeah. So we're not seeing all the fish that dive below us. Whereas if you talk to a spear fisherman, they can tell you about populations they can tell you about the abalone issues in northern california and their urchin populations and because they're incentivized to learn about that absolutely i mean i think that's a problem with motivating the public to get involved in ocean conservation generally you look out there and you're like blue glassy nice sunset everything's all good yep you know even if it's polluted, you can't see that. Yeah. Uh, what's the acronym? It's uh, WIFM, I think they call it. What's in it for me? Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know about WIFM? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but conversely, one thing that inspires me is how quickly populations can rebound when you give them a chance. Nature wants to live. And a place yep. like the Monterey Bay, before it had a marine protected, before it was, it was protected, was also fished out. And people were having those same conversations. I talked to older guys, um, and they said that the conversations back then were like, oh, yeah, it's it's dead. It's over. It's over. Yeah, the sardine, you know, the whole history of, like, the sardine uh, canneries in Monterey, mm-hmm. uh, gone. You know, they, and yeah. now, but the, you're right. And here, you know, so Laguna is one of a network of marine reserves up and down the coast of California. And, you know. I got beat up by all my buddies in town who are spear fishermen and fishermen when we were supporting this thing. And uh, there was a lot of skeptics. And now it's been five, six years, and you can see the difference. Yeah. Teeming with life. You look under a rock, and there'll be like 50 lobster under there. Yeah. It's, same it, in Mon- it, same it's with incredible. Monterey, man. I'm reaping the benefits of <laughs> the, uh, the hard work that the generation past put in to create areas where you can't fish, and then the populations will have spillover, and they'll, you got, you got a thriving ecosystem. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it's also nice to know that, you know, even if we do screw something up, there's an opportunity to bring it back. Yeah, life wants to live. Yep. Just give it a shot. Yeah. Um, so that was your first entree into uh, environmental activism, was right here in Laguna Beach. Well, it was the awareness that there were problems. You know, it was, it was that. And then Orange County, you know, Laguna Beach in the 70s was a pretty sleepy place. And Did you grow up here? Yeah. Cool. Yep. And um, Orange County just boomed. I, mean, I think the population's gone up like seven times since I was a kid. Wow. Irvine didn't exist. It was orange groves and strawberry farms and Orange uh, County. It really was Orange County. And uh watching that change and watching the impacts that had, you know, it used to be when you were a kid, if you were uh cut your hand, your mom would say, Hey, go put it in the ocean, it'll make it better. Whether or not that was true, I don't know. But you know, now it's certainly don't surf after it rains for three days. So it's those yeah, that kind didn't of change a thing. No. Well, it's what another thing that's interesting is how we're kind of uh, at least in my world of listening to a lot of podcasts with uh, nutritionists on. They're now talking about the importance of biodiversity for our microbiome. 
Yes. Right. That yep. like now uh, it's coming to light that vaginal births are much more healthy because the baby can get inoculated by the the vaginal walls and that helps yeah, it's crazy. create the the microbiome. You know, going in the ocean, being out in nature can uh, literally save you from autoimmune diseases and a lot of these these diseases that we're facing now as a result of us living in a sterile environment. Right. Yeah. Well, you you know, I'm, I'm, when my kids were little, you go to the preschool or the kindergarten, every kid has a bottle of Purell attached to their backpack, you know, to kill bacteria, which, you know, it's funny because we think of bacteria as being bad. Bacteria runs the world. Yeah. <laughs> we are bacteria. <laughs> yeah. Everything that breaks down in on the planet turns back into soil or minerals or nutrients or oxygen is being driven by bacteria so we vilified this small small tiny percentage of bacteria that can get us sick compared to the 99.99 percent of bacteria that are yeah good and and making the world run yeah and making the case for environmentalism using the the WIFM model is yeah. that biodiversity can is good say it's good for your immune system getting out <laughs> in the ocean is good for your immune system yeah so it is cool to see uh, a lot of the new information coming to light mm -hmm. um you just hope that we can uh get the information out there as quickly as possible yeah absolutely and you know we can we can get into the sort of politics of what's going on in our country and you know i was at this conference it was the the national caucus of environmental leaders it's been on my mind so it was really eye-opening it was about 200 150 200 state legislators mostly democrats but some republicans in the mix they're all focused on state level environmental issues and these state level government people are pretty practical so they're trying to deal with transportation issues and clean air issues and clean water issues. I, I feel like it's a, you know, at the federal level, it's a little hypothetical. At the state level, it's real. You know, are they going to fund a project to improve light rail in Los Angeles or not? And, um, you know, I felt like the people in the room were really pragmatic. This was not an ideological thing. This was, hey, what can we do, you know, in Hawaii where there's fuel costs are high every drop of fuels imported um they're suffering the effects of climate change whether that's bigger storms there's that crazy flood in Kauai, um sea level rise and all these things and they're like all right if we can clean our air reduce climate change and have a better transportation system let's do that and they're like why is that a republican thing or a democrat thing that's just a problem solving yeah. thing, you know, and I, I think that's one thing we should really, it would be nice if we could get past that environmental issues are liberal democratic issues. And, and, uh, if you're a Republican or pro business, you're still somehow, breathing air. <laughs> yeah, right? you, you want, and that's what these guys were saying. You, know, you want clean water, you want clean air, you want efficiency, you yeah. know? And so, well, it's interesting how these issues, uh, become polarized by industry. Yep. Clean air, clean water, um, these should not be contentious issues, but people who stand to profit from uh, deregulation, people who stand to profit from not needing to clean up their Superfund toxic waste dump, uh, they will turn it into a left-right issue purposely. Yep. Um, I recently watched a documentary called Merchants of Doubt. Have you ever heard of that? Mm -hmm. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but fuck, I know that. Fuck, it's well done, man. It's really yeah. good. It's, it's all about how industry uses um, 
PR firms to instill doubt in the public, specifically for the reason of um, making it seem like there's not a consensus on an issue. Yep. So the tobacco industry did this. They don't need to say, oh, smoking doesn't cause cancer. They just need to convince enough people that the jury's still out. Right. That they'll still Uh, keep smoking. Do they know? I mean, climate change is obviously the other classic example. And the media plays a role because... You know, you're taught as a journalist to always present both sides. So there's 97% of scientists believe that climate change is human-induced, which it is, and 3% are paid by industry and don't, and they interview one of each. Right. And you're like, oh, I don't know. It's a debate. Yeah. You know, I remember, uh, I can't remember if it was Colbert or one of those guys sort of talked about that, and they're like, all right, we're going we're gonna to make this visual. So they had like 97 scientists on one side and three on the other, and they're like, this is what it looks like. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I saw a funny Instagram meme recently. It said, if you're a journalist and one person says it's raining outside and the other person says it's sunny, it's not your job to report both sides. It's your job to go outside and see what the weather's like. <laughs> Look. Yep. Yeah. Um, so what were you doing at this conference? Uh, like, what were you representing? Were you speaking there? Were you just yeah. listening? What, what was your I, role there? I was on a panel on offshore oil drilling. Um, and so... The Trump administration in January um, opened up, well, I guess if you rewind, in 2017, Trump signed an executive order to ask the Department of Interior that controls offshore drilling in America uh, to sort of maximize the opportunity for oil drilling around the country. The Department of Interior in January released a plan with their intent to open up 90% of U.S. waters to offshore drilling. So this is everything from Maine to Florida, the rest of the Gulf, the eastern side of the Gulf that hasn't been drilled from the Mexican border in California to the Arctic. Um, And that launched a process by which they're going to start trying to come up with a plan and a map to where to drill, you know, off our coast. So Obama had actually proposed this on the Atlantic coast in 2015, and we and Oceana and others organized on the East Coast. And I think as a result of that organizing, shut that down. Um, it's it's just like we were talking about these corporate interests. It's really good for the oil companies, terrible for coastal communities. So if you know if you're in North Carolina on the Outer Banks and you've got a restaurant or you've got a hotel, um, you know huge tourism, or here in Laguna Beach or where you are in Santa Cruz, you know oil rig off the coast is not going to benefit you if it spills, which it inevitably will, or right. all the infrastructure, air quality, everything goes with it. It's going to take your coastal b- tourism business and, you know, knock it down. So it's fascinating. As a result of that fight, and I think the ills of offshore drilling, actually almost every coastal state, the governors of every coastal state, with the exception of three, are opposed to this plan. So you've got Maine, which I don't think they'll ever drill for oil up there. There's not a lot. Alaska, which is kind of a case unto itself. Uh, and Georgia, which is undecided. So these state, it was encouraging to see these state, these state, uh, you know, senators and state representatives are like, what can we do as a state if we don't want to see this plan go through? What are our options? So that's what we were talking about. Um, all states own the first three miles of ocean off their coast. And then the rest from three miles out to 200 miles is something called the exclusive economic zone. That's U.S. waters. And that's federal water. 
So um, the states have this thin little ribbon along the edge that they control. So they're trying to figure out how to use that ribbon to protect their states. Fascinating. So can a state supersede a federal order if Secretary of Interior Ryan Sinke says we're pushing through, we're going to open up 90 percent of U.S. waters for drilling? How do how does a group like you and, and how does the governor who you're working with go about fighting, fighting that? that? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean. We're trying to fight it on multiple levels. One is educating the public, so they're calling their representatives, telling the government they don't want it, you know. But if you look at Bears Ears, like 99% of the comments were in, a, in opposition to it, and they did it anyway. So we're doing that. But so what, at the end of the day, there's a couple different things states can do. There's something called the Coastal Zone Management Act, which is a federal act that sets up coastal programs. In California, that's the Coastal Commission. Every coastal state has one of those. Um, there is part of that law says if you have a certified coastal program by the federal government, there's something called consistency. So that means that what the federal what the federal actions are in the federal waters, which is everything outside of three miles, has to be consistent with what the state's doing in their three miles. Okay. So that presumably the state you can't do something in the federal waters that would negatively impact what the state's trying to do in state waters. Right. So that's one potential method and it hasn't really been tested. So, you know, the sort of legal minds in this, in the States and in the environmental community are sort of looking that at that as a tool to do this. The other thing that's happening, which is really pretty clever and California is looking at it, New Jersey's done it and Delaware's done it, which is they're like the state of California, all these States own the seafloor out to three miles. So what they're saying is, all right, we will not allow any oil infrastructure to cross this three mile ribbon of seafloor and you can't come into our ports and unload your oil or build any infrastructure in our ports. So it makes it more expensive for them so if, if you they want to Yeah, you have a rig ten miles offshore and you can't bring it in anywhere along the 1,100-mile California coast. You, you got to take it, take the long way around. Uh, it's going to make it really expensive and difficult. So it's okay. pretty fascinating. So that's that's kind of what I think. You know, California has a bill right now that could pass that would, you know, restrict any oil drilling infrastructure on in California sort of seabeds or waters and uh, like Delaware, New Jersey, and that would make it pretty tough. Yeah, but it would it makes sense uh, that states would be opposed to this because the rest of their industries suffer as a result of oil drill, drilling. Like So California, for example, if a bunch of uh, oil rigs set up shop outside of Santa Cruz, the restaurant industry suffers, tourism suffers. But you know, uh, Exxon or whoever puts those oil, um, uh, oil drill, rigs. oil rigs, yep. so oil, oil rigs in, um, isn't going to be negatively impacted by the destruction of a local economy. No, they don't care. They don't care. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to put it in the, um, uh, through the prism of incentives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and it's interesting. Uh, also, I mean, this was, this really brought it home for me in, 2015 in may of 2015 there was a spill in santa barbara the plains all-american pipeline spill that dumped about 140,000 gallons of oil into the water of fujio state beach and uh i actually talked to chris malloy your pal yep. patagonia ambassador yeah chris is great i've had him on the show amazing guy yeah and uh he called me and he was incredibly distraught it was really interesting i mean he was 
just these swirling emotions. He told me he like knows every nook and cranny of that reef. That was like the place he grew up snorkeling. And he's like, I know the fish. I know. I just love that place. And now it's been destroyed by this oil spill. And um, he was angry. He was devastated. Just this swirl. Of, he's like, I, you know, he's like, I'm not really a violent person, but I feel like I want to go like go down there and like hit somebody. And <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I was talking him through this and he's like, what can I do? You know, and it was interesting because I was like, this is the sad part. I was like, there's actually like nothing you can do. Once these things spill, toothpaste is out of the tube. You're like, you know, you you can't really go clean it up. I mean, people do because it's a hazmat site. That, that oil's toxic. So you shouldn't go down there. And they won't let you in many cases go down there and clean it up. It's like the guys in the white Tyvek suits mopping it up. Uh and the damage is kind of done. I mean, we can, you know, the lawsuit for that three years later is just starting, you know, and there's efforts to get money and do restoration and all those things, which are good and important. But it's so frustrating the minute it happens. Yeah. What do you do? Um, so how did you win the battle in 2015? Yeah. I mean, it was classic, good old fashioned grassroots organizing. So. A number, this was a proposal basically from Florida up to roughly D.C., Delaware. That was the area that was being considered. There was an area in the Arctic, too. and um, But we were focused on this area in the mid-Atlantic. And, you know, we got out and started educating the public. Our chapter network started, you know, hosting meetings, talking about the, the negative impacts of offshore drilling, why this is a bad idea, you know, the coastal tourism economy is bigger than the oil drilling economy could ever be. So this isn't really about jobs. Uh, here's what oil spills do. Here's what the infrastructure does. So just getting people like, okay, this is bad. Uh, and then we started organizing in communities. And so we were passing local resolutions in communities. So the city of Carolina Beach, a small city just south of Wilmington, was the first one. And they passed a resolution in opposition to drilling. We went to Wilmington, which is the biggest city on that North Carolina coast, and got them to pass a resolution. And we started passing these resolutions. And they started from Florida all the way up to D.C. We started, like, closing, you know, getting more and more and more of these coastal communities to say no. At one point, we had 100% of the coastal communities in South Carolina passing formal resolutions in opposition to drilling. And what that does is it made the governors in some of these states were pro-drilling, a lot of the representatives in these states, their red states, are pro-drilling. But all of a sudden, it becomes really hard to represent your community if every town in your district has passed a resolution against drilling. It's really hard for you to say, no, I'm support. I'm representing them, and I'm for it. Yeah. So, so we started seeing people flip, and we started seeing the local chambers of commerce that are often pretty conservative coming out against it because it's bad for coastal business. Um, and it ultimately started to create bipartisan opposition, which we still see today against drilling. And so, you know, that trickled up to the Obama administration, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which manages these leases. You know, and in that case, I feel like they really listened to the local representatives. And so at the end, after Obama had this all of the above strategy, he actually took it all off the map wow yeah if your professed job is a social is a, a civil servant and all of the people who you are professing to serve are in opposition to a bill it's really difficult to to come out with a straight face and say well yeah this is what the people want 
Right. I got a big fat donation from the American Petroleum Institute. So I'm for it, even though everybody I represents against it. Yeah. And I think that that gets to really the the crux of a lot of these issues that we're facing. Yeah. There's a guy named Lawrence Lessig who, uh, mm-hmm. do you know who that is? Yep. Yeah, he, he gives a great TED talk um, on campaign finance reform and he talks about how campaign finance reform isn't the most important issue, but it's the first issue. Yep. And I, the more that I get into these, these conversations, the more I find that it all, that stream just always trickles back up to asking the questions of how are these representatives, quote unquote representatives, getting elected? Because yep. typically the, the politician who can raise the most money for a campaign is going to get elected. And Lawrence Lessig talks about how when these politicians are sitting in office, they will spend 30 to 70 percent of their term. So this is you know, three to you know, two to, f- to four days out of their week calling donors physically calling donors and getting them to uh, give money. So the way that he explains it is that we end up in the system that we have now where politicians become shapeshifters, where they get on the phone with, who was it that you were talking about, the American Petroleum Institute, Institute yeah. and, and they say, hey, so, you know, I'm, I'm looking to get my new term in California, and then the, the representative from the Petroleum Institute says, oh, well, how do you feel about offshore drilling? And then the, the politician kind of shifts a little bit. It's like taking a, a, a hot girl on a new date, and she's like, hey, so uh, do, do you like Indian food? And like, ah, I could learn to like it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, mean, I could uh, learn to love it. And you're totally. just sitting at dinner sweating about to yeah. shit your pants. <laughs> I really like it. This is great. <laughs> She's trying to get laid tonight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a guy, uh, Senator Whitehouse, awesome guy. He represents, he's a senator from Rhode Island. He wrote a great op-ed that I've repeated over and over again about a year ago in the New York Times. And it was like, my poor Republican friends are afraid to face climate change. And he was like, they all believe it. That They know better. They're not dumb. Like the whole denial thing is just an excuse and uh, they want to address this issue, but they're beholden to all these donors. And he, he, he was almost like sympathetic for them that they're stuck, you know, and it was a really I mean, he just laid it out exactly as it is. They are just handcuffed by the donors they've chosen to accept. Yeah. Um, one of the things actually about I've learned at Surfrider and is one of the reasons I really believe in the model at Surfrider is regardless of the amount of money that goes into any one of these topics, there are more people than dollars. And so if we actually had a democracy where everyone participated, you could beat the dollars every single time because at the end of the day, they need votes and those guys can spend a lot of money and all of those things, but they don't have that many people. Nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, goes, God, you know, I really feel sorry for those oil companies I'm going to get out there today and I'm going to hustle to make sure they make a little bit more money this year. Yeah. Nobody does. But people feel empathetic for people that are working hard and can't make a living or people that are suffering from the impacts of pollution or all these other social issues. And um, and so, you know, if we can get people out to vote, get people to city council meetings and get people participating in democracy, I think you can actually overcome all that money and that's the advantage that we have that's why the grassroots organizing that Surfrider and other groups do i really believe in and i've seen it it works every time it's done right 
Yeah. It really does. You know, if you show up at a city council meeting anywhere in the country with 25 people, you're a phenomenon because nobody shows up. Oh, yeah. You know, so if you I, I sometimes I think, you know, democracy is a lot like exercise. Like if it's not done regularly and vigorously, it gets fat and bloated and lazy. And that's I think that in some cases we got to look in the mirror and say, OK, you know, this is the thing. The, the businesses that are hiring lobbyists and doing all the things you're talking about, they have a self-interest, right? They're trying to make money. So they're they're trying to get their project passed they're trying to get the regulations they're actually obligated to yeah and so they're they're contractually obligated to try and make as much money as possible the the hard part is that the the people who want to keep the water clean the beaches healthy in our case they have to take a night off from watching their favorite netflix show or getting dinner with their family and go sit at a city council meeting for a couple hours which is not fun but amazingly effective you know and so you know in some ways i think if we can participate in that or make that process easier to participate in then we can overcome all this stuff yeah one thing i think is really intelligent that surfighter does is that although you are a fairly large environmental organization you have this um, network of local chapters to get people involved i was reading a book called switch a couple years ago Mm -hmm. have you ever heard of that how to create change when change is hard and it talked about how in the 1960s when martin luther king was trying to get thousands of people onto Capitol Hill with pre-internet, right? Yeah. Like imagine yeah. trying to get that many people <laughs> onto Capitol Hill without cell phones, without internet. How did he do it? Yeah. Well, they weren't distracted by Instagram, so that helped. Yeah, that did. <laughs> <laughs> All those asses on Instagram. I'm like, wait, what needs to be saved? Yeah. Okay, shit. But he did it through the churches. Yep. He got people to show up at churches. social organizing vehicle. Yeah, yeah. And, and he created uh, an accountability structure where he's like, all right, Chad, are you going to go on Tuesday? Yeah, of course. All right, Kyle, I'll pick you up on Tuesday evening and we'll head down to the event. Because he knew that we're such social creatures, creating a kind of accountability system uh, would be way more effective. And now you see a lot of, you know, I was talking about nutrition earlier. You see a lot of nutrition coaches and, and people who are kind of at the forefront of these topics, like Tim Ferriss talking about, um, talking about uh, how to get people to stick to diets. And yep. he says the way you get people to stick to diets is through accountability. Yeah. He will literally write a $500 check to the KKK and sign it and give it to a friend and say, all right, if I drink alcohol anytime in the next month, I want you to cash this check. Right. And he's like, yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. Either where you're going to get up and go for a run or go for a surf. If you're going solo, that alarm goes off at like five in the morning and you're like laying in bed and you're like, ah, maybe I'll go. Maybe I won't go. Maybe I'll hit snooze. But if your buddy is going to come pick you up or you need to go pick him up or you're going to meet him there. Yep you'll go yeah but um yeah well and back to Surfrider, i think that organizing at the local level you were talking about it it has the benefit like if you go down and sit down at the city council meeting our city council meeting for three hours to like give your three minute testimony on a topic it's not that fun but if you go meet 20 people for dinner and you plan this thing and you go to the meeting and you're all sitting together and you're excited because you get your vote that you win and you all go out to the bar afterwards and celebrate the fact that you just, you know, ban single use plastic bags in your community or whatever you were trying to accomplish, that adds that social element and it makes it fun. And that's one of the things we're really trying to do. We're dealing with serious topics, 
not as serious as the most serious topics going on, but they're pretty serious topics. I mean, a healthy ocean and coast is pretty fundamental to our enjoyment, our health, and ultimately the planet. Yeah, but, and if surfers aren't fighting for it, no one is. Yeah. That's, but, that's another thing it's important yeah, to realize. It's totally. like, you're the ones out there in the water. You're the ones who are going to protect it. No one else is. You have the most to benefit and the most yeah, to lose. Exactly. And uh, But if you make it social, we can make activism fun. Yeah. And, you know, I see these chapters. They become communities. They get people get to know each other. I just was talking to a woman on Thursday morning who moved from New York City out to LA because her husband got a job out here and she's like yeah I'm like how's it going she's been here six months she's like well I just plugged into the surf rider chapter I knew they were going to be like great like-minded people and so she's like it's been a pretty easy transition but it's that social and community element that makes this work yeah a lot more fun than it otherwise would be yeah I was uh, blown away about a year and a half ago I went down to San Luis Obispo for the California Coastal Commission meeting and I made a short film on the firing of uh, Dr. Charles Lester yeah I remember that yeah and there were thousands of people that showed up yeah and Surfrider had a booth there and uh, a, a number of other local environmental mm-hmm. organizations. And it was a ton of like-minded people. Yeah. Um, so to show up and see how democracy works in action um, does flex that muscle that you're talking about. It does. And, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the history of the California Coastal Commission um, in the 70s, there was a couple big there was a couple things that triggered it. One was the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill. Massive. I can't remember, 3 million gallons spill, closed beaches. It was huge wow. national catastrophe. So there were oil rigs in the 60s off Santa Barbara. I didn't know yeah, that. That's when they first started. And uh, and then there was a big development in the North Coast called Sea Ranch that was built that closed off I don't know how many miles of coast, and they privatized it. And you know the smart, visionary people who were paying attention were like, they saw, okay, this is the future of the California coast. We're going to industrialize the ocean and we're going to privatize the land. And we can't see that. You know, this was in the middle of the great and sort of environmental awakening when the clean water act and the EPA, all these things were happening in the seventies. Earth day. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, the, you know, they couldn't get pass a law to get established the California coastal act at the time. So they passed a prop 20 citizens initiative. So this was, Grassroots, again, signature gathering and uh, a proposition like we see on the ballot. And the California citizens voted and passed the the first, you know, what ultimately became the Coastal Act, the first coastal program for the state of California. And that mandated beach access and develop control of development and all these things we see here. Um, and then once that was established, they came back and passed the Coastal Act, which set up the Coastal Commission we have today. So it really was driven by the public of California who who wanted to see this coast protected for everyone. So what does the California Coastal Commission do? The Coastal California Coastal Commission regulates development along the California coast. Um, there is a zone that actually varies in distance from the coast called the coastal zone. So there's a line along the shore. It could be a mile in, it could be 10 miles in. And inside that strip of coast along the California coast, the Coastal Commission has regulatory authority over development. So they have passed that on to local communities through something called a local coastal plan. So Santa City of Santa Cruz has a local coastal plan. It conforms to the Coastal Act. And then the Coastal Commission says, hey, Santa Cruz, you guys can regulate your own development. Now, if the City of Santa Cruz does something that the public or someone like Surfrider doesn't like... 
we can appeal that decision up to the Coastal Commission. If it's an issue that takes place in state waters or is going to impact state waters, it goes to the Coastal Commission. And there's some parts of the California coast, whether it's a state park or a city that doesn't have a local coastal plan, it goes straight to the Coastal Commission. So anything you want, if you want to build a big resort, if you want to put in a seawall, if you want to do what Vinod Coastal is doing in Martins Beach and close the road to the beach, all of those things require a permit, a coastal development permit from the Coastal Commission. And so, and the Coastal Commission has a series of very specific sections in it that section 30253, which mandates what you can do with a seawall and all these uh, section on access and so on views, all these components. Right. We were talking before we went on about Baja and how now there are massive stretches in northern Baja where there's no coastal access. Yep. And I think that for someone like myself, before I went to this hearing uh, down in, in um, San Luis Obispo with Charles Lester, I had never thought about coastal access, really. Mm-hmm. I always thought that it was my God-given right to it's, go down to the beach. Just there. And it's yeah. just there. Um, and after that meeting, I started thinking about these various areas uh, along the coast that are privatized. Um down in Baja, a ton of it's privatized. Yep. A hotel developer will come in and they will make it only possible for hotel uh, hotel guests to have access down to the beach. And I realized that, like, man, if it wasn't for some of these decisions made in the 70s, we might not be able to get to the beach anymore. Absolutely. I, there's, you know, one of the groups we work with and I adore is Wild Coast. Yeah. Based down in San Diego, they do a ton of work in Baja. And uh, I was with Serge Dedina and Zach Plopper, the two guys there, and we were going down to Rosarito for for a little conf- conservation con- um, conference. It was actually the Global Wave conference that we did in Santa Cruz yep. a few years back. And they took us on a field trip, and pretty much from the border at Tijuana all the way down to Ensenada, there's like almost there's almost no access and if you know it maybe you can find a little place to sneak in or out so it's like a i don't know how many k55 so 55 kilometer 30 mile stretch with no access unless you own a condo know a friend or have a stay at a hotel right Uh, and i think if it wasn't for the california coastal act there's a very good chance that the california coast would look like that so imagine if from san diego to santa barbara you couldn't go to the beach unless you knew somebody be terrible yeah so what do you think about i mean these are these are kind of we're we're entering into the waters of privatization and uh deregulation and and these are topics that are on the forefront now i mean a lot of people think that we should deregulate everything and let the free market decide um I and I'm not the most educated person in the world on this subject, but it is fascinating to me. One thing that I think is a problem with that model is that uh, industry will externalize its costs however possible. And by that, I mean that like Exxon won't pay for the oil spill um, or, you know, that they will climate change or the climate change. You know, and um, we don't necessarily value nature correctly. I was talking about how uh, a biodiverse ecosystem can help you from auto help you uh, ward off 
autoimmune diseases, we don't equate that or we don't fact that in into the equation. Um, I know that I'm kind of just spraying a lot of yeah, topics yeah. at you right yeah, yeah. now, but I think that it's an interesting one to explore. No, it is. I mean, and, you know, obviously with the Trump administration, their whole thesis is reduce regulation and improve the economy. Let's right. get business back. I think it's actually just a corporate handout. But, um, you know, and I was at this caucus of environmental leaders, you know, there was a bunch of people from California who were there, you know, and they made a point, which is a really good one, which is California has been a leader on sort of reducing carbon and, you know, limiting emissions. How have we been doing that? um, We passed a bill, Senate Bill 350 to this, I think, was in the Schwarzenegger era to set up a cap and trade program. So what this means is they say the total amount of carbon that can be emitted is at X level. Yeah. And you can trade your, so you get basically credits to emit carbon. If you're a, you know, if you're an oil refinery or whatever business you have, and you can actually, those become like monetary, like poker chips. So you can buy and sell those. Um, it creates a carbon market. Okay. So you can buy and sell those. So if you install really efficient technology and you reduce your carbon emissions below the cap, then you can sell you can sell your carbon credits to somebody else. Okay. So the idea is it's kind of a mix of a sort of capitalist approach, which is we're not going to tell you how much carbon you could emit. We're going to tell you that this is how much can get emitted as a state. You guys sort out who gets it. So if you're a really polluting industry, presumably you can pay and buy a bunch of carbon credits and continue to pollute. Whereas other businesses will say, Hey, I'm going to get efficient and save money and I'll sell my carbon credits. So that's what California's done. And you know, I, there's something called the, uh, renewable portfolio standard, which is the goal for what percentage of your total power will be created by renewable energy. We set a goal in California to hit a number by 2020. <clears throat> We've already hit it. So they're out in front of this standard to, you know, get off carbon emitting power sources. It's fantastic. And meanwhile, California this year became the fifth largest economy in the world. It's literally just I think it's China, Japan, the United States and one other European country. It might be Germany and then the state of California. It's crazy to think about. It is crazy. And so, you know, the, these elected officials, and I agree with them, were like, hey, California is showing that you can regulate these industries, which, by the way, is makes the air we breathe clean. It makes kids in L.A. not get asthma. It's like good for us. It's reducing. <laughs> it's like know, good it's, for it's us. It's healthy. Yeah. Um, we're not poisoning our public. Yeah. That's good. And we're reducing our, you know our part of the carbon footprint that's warming the planet that's causing heat waves and fires and all the things we're hearing about like this summer while growing our economy yeah my mom grew up in la and she talked about the smog in la before smog checks were put in place yep and you couldn't see up the road yeah i i grew up here in laguna beach relative you know an hour south of los angeles during a time when the state was not nearly as crowded as it is now and I remember vividly my brother and I on hot summer days when we had the Santa Ana's, which would push all the smog back west. I'd lay in bed at night coughing with this like asthmatic cough. And you was horrible. You because once you started coughing, you couldn't stop. And that was from running around as a kid on a bad air day. And uh, that doesn't happen anymore. 
Yeah. It's awesome. And then, you know, the California Air Resources Board, CARB, they are another one of these, like, really powerful regulatory agency that business loves to hate uh, that cleaned up the air. So my kids don't have that. So uh, let's make the opposite argument here for deregulation. Are there places that you can see where regulation has run amok and uh, caused an economy or an area to to suffer? What's the opposite argument here? It's, that's a good question. I mean, and I think there's balances to be had. You know, I don't know a ton about it, but I know a lot of people in the financial industry complain about Sarbanes-Oxley, which is all the regulations that got put in after the banking crisis. And a lot of people have left that industry because they're like, I just fill out paperwork now. So I don't know enough to know if that was overkill. Um, you know, the Coastal Commission is criticized because it is really bureaucratic, and one of the things I think they've done maybe at a disservice to themselves is they sometimes pick on the little guys. So if you're, you know, if you want to add an addition to your house and you don't have a local coastal plan, you're hiring a lawyer to like go to the coastal commission to get a coastal development permit to like extend your wall six feet. Right. Maybe that's overkill. Whereas they should be focusing on these big issues, not these little issues. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, in theory, you know, the free market sounds great. And I think that it's the key is it's theory. We don't live in a perfectly capitalistic system. There's, you know, it's Marxism, capitalism, all these things work perfectly in theory. And then you get to reality, right? So we have this weird blend here as part of the, in America where we have, you know, when's the last time you built your own road? You didn't. Somebody built it for you, right? That's socialism, Medicare. We have all these things that are community benefits, fire department, police, lifeguards, you know, which we take for granted, those are all forms of socialism, right? We all pitch in via taxes, and then we get these services that treat everybody. And uh, so I think, you know, the this concept of deregulate will unleash business. It may, and it may have some short-term benefits until you get a Flint, Michigan, you know, or whatever it is. People start getting poisoned because we don't have health regulations on chicken. <laughs> or, you know, so it's like it... it I think it, it, in concept, it's all about this balance. And if you take it one extreme or the other, you're not going to get what you need. Yeah, I did a documentary a number of years ago in Hawaii on the GMO issue. And I yep. learned a lot about the precautionary principle. Mm-hmm. This is the uh, assumption that a lot of American ha- um, Americans have that we uh, operate under the precautionary principle, meaning that if it's dangerous, industry won't put it on the shelf. Yep. Right. But in reality the way the u.s operates is that it will get put on the shelf until enough people die right I, right? right no other I, I, other countries in europe operate under the precautionary principle and it's much more difficult to get a product on the shelf right. that might give you cancer down the road or give you know, your kid autism or something like that but right um, it, yeah if you don't understand it play on the safe side right and you know i think that's a and so, yeah, I mean, and the GMO thing's interesting. You know, there was a bill in California to require GMO labeling, which is, you know, not, <laughs> not going to eliminate GMOs. It's just going to say, hey, yeah. they're in this product. It allows the consumer to make an informed consent. Yeah, they fought that. Like, the industry fought that like crazy because they know as soon as that gets put on the package, no one's going to buy it. So. Right. Yeah. And the reason one of the reasons that industry operates in Hawaii is because they have very lax environmental laws. So yeah. uh, chemical like atrazine can be tested on crops in Hawaii 
uh, and it can't be tested in Europe or even in other states. Right. Yeah, I mean, the other thing about the GMOs that I understand in Hawaii, which is kind of interesting, is the Hawaiian Islands are the most geographically isolated land on the planet. So it's kind of a perfect place to experiment something. You know, if these crops they make go sideways, they're not going to, like, screw up the crops down the road. Yeah, yeah, there are a number of reasons. They have three growing seasons, yeah. so they can uh, test and Keep grow going. all year long. Yeah. Um, one thing that was interesting that I learned is that very few... Uh, crops on Hawaii, given the, the mass amount of crops that they have. Like, oh, if you go into Haleiwa and you mm-hmm. look on your right, yep. that's all GMO testing. But very few of them are for human consumption. So a lot of these crops are, I think, fallow would be the right word. Mm-hmm. They aren't for human consumption. They just uh, use it for testing. Wow. So the, yep. the argument that a lot of people have are that given that Hawaii imports about 90% of their food. Right. Why aren't we using that? And they have three growing seasons. Why not grow some fucking food here (laughs) so that the people don't need to, yeah, the people don't need to import it. Um, So what, uh, so you're working on the, the um, oil drilling issue right now. Number one. That's the number one thing. I, yeah, it's the number one thing. Cause you know, I mean, California, you know, California and the country actually over the last 10 or 20 years has actually made a, tremendous amount of progress on our coast we should be really proud i mean santa monica bay is cleaner than it ever was you know it used to be really polluted heal the bay and others deserve credit for that we've established better fishing regulations these marine protected areas so we're watching the marine ecosystem get healthier you know there's a lot of success stories the coastal commission has done i mean back to the coastal commission for a second the amount of the value of coastal property in California and the amount of money to be made and the p- development pressure that's on our coasts, the fact that we've been able to balance that and have what I think of as a relatively like healthy coast with access and beaches is extraordinary. And, you know, that's the Coastal Commission. There's all these great things. There's a great book by a guy named David Helvar called The Golden Shore. Yeah, I know David. Yeah. Yep. And uh, that book's sort of a a really optimistic tale of sort of what's happened to the California coast. And I believe I, I, I agree with him. We've done great things. And to undo all of that by putting in these oil rigs would just be such a disaster. So that's why it's our biggest fight. It's like, we, we, I think it would threaten all the good things that have happened. Yeah. So. It's a small seam between society and the wild that we value arguably more than any other in the world. Yep. There's a reason why it costs so much to live in a house on the beach. Yeah. Um, Jay Nichols, blue mind. Oh yeah. Well, it's Jay Nichols. He's, <laughs> he's one of my favorites. Um, what does it does? What does it do for us? I mean, these are conversations that we, that, that, Wallace J. Nichols argues for that there is this yeah. intrinsic value um, that water gives to us. There's the, the well-being. How does it make you feel when yeah. you put your toes in the sand and what value does that give to your life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, what he's done, which is cool, is he's, you know, in some ways it's pretty obvious because the ocean front row costs the most money. So economics is telling us that we like that more than other places. Um, and you know, we all love to go to oceanfront restaurants and resorts and beaches, the number one tourist destination in America. But what he showed is that there's actually measurable, you, you can look at people's brains and actually measure sort of like the flood of like calming hormones or whatever it is yeah, that, chemicals mind. that flow into your brain when you're, when you're on the beach. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, we obviously love our coasts. If you look at a map of the United States at night, a satellite map of the United States at night, 
it pretty much is an outline of the of the country yeah because we're all living along those little edges i think 40 percent of the u.s population lives within the first like 30 miles 10 percent of the coast <sighs> crazy yeah um cool i'm gonna let you go soon but um are, are you guys involved in plastic pollution as well i know that's yes. kind of hit the forefront on the national it, stage just recently it, it really People has keep hitting me up and I'm like do you know that with plastic straws being banned the disabled community is not going to be able to get their plastic i'm like i don't know that's been that's, an interesting backlash it's super so interesting we, we yes we're doing we're doing a and ton maybe of that's an example of regulation yeah you know well i i think that's you know we all get into that in a second. Yeah. So the plastic thing is a big deal. Um, it's actually one of these things that's really encouraging because it's, you know, I don't know if you read the tipping point from Malcolm Gladwell yep. back in the day, but it's tipped, right? It's gone from an issue. I mean, Surfrider has been working on this issue for a decade, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, for a long time, people are like, what are you talking about? And all of a sudden you see all these corporations, right? So you just saw... Um, Airlines like Alaska Airline and the Marriott and uh, all Starbucks getting rid of straws and plastic. So there's this increased awareness. So it's hit the public consciousness in a big way, which is fantastic because we are dumping so much plastic into the oceans. Um, and it's a fossil fuel product. I mean, and it's unsustainable in so many ways, um, which is great. And so you're seeing straw bans, which is, you know, straws are really just the gateway drug to plastics, I think. Right. Because it's, straws alone are not going to like save the world but it's a start and i think the the backlash from um the disabled community about the straws was i think there's a couple interesting things about that one it's a good wake-up call for the environmental community to say hey look you know you can't be so sort of myopic and singular focus that you're just it's me in the oceans without trying to think more broadly about how your actions might affect other people so I think that's a great wake-up call. Hey, when we pass this A, B, or C regulation, what is that? What unanticipated impact may that have? So I think that's a good call. On the flip side, hey, look, there's we have handicapped parking places. We have ADA, American Disabilities Act, accommodations, as we should, so that there's ramps and other things so that people who with less ability can get around the world, which I think we all agree is a good thing to do. And so I think this is another case where it's pretty easily fixed. We just provide exemptions for straws so every restaurant should have a bucket of straws just like they should have a ramp to get in and those straws can be used by people who need them yeah yeah so, and i think that the, if, if only the disabled were the people using straws in the world that would be good we would be just fine yeah 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 it is exciting to see the conversation hit the national stage and also exciting to work through uh, a, a smaller issue like the fact that disabled people do need plastic straws and work with people um, under the same good intent. I think that's that's the key here, yeah. right? Is that there yeah. are certain people who bring up the like, well, disabled people need straws, bro. And their intention is to paralyze the conversation. Right. Rather than address a legitimate need, ad address yep. a legitimate need and say, all right, we're creative. We've built uh Teslas, we built, you know, solar panels that can take sun energy and convert it into, you know, energy that will power your house. Okay, I think we can figure this one out. Yep. And I think just the wake up call, and, you know, there's been another really interesting debate in California about affordable housing. Mm -hmm. So we don't have enough housing in California, and um, it's expensive for people to live here. And, you know, one of the conflicts we've heard is well the environmental community this is maybe a classic case of your regulation issue is 
trying to stop overdevelopment of the coast or overdevelopment, but that's one of the reasons that's one of the things that's driving the housing shortage. So we need to make the regulations more lax to free up the opportunity to build more housing in more places to try to, you know, accommodate that shortage. So it's another case of like sort of these yeah. issues, you know, because there's there's certainly an argument to be made, and I think it's somewhat fair that we've turned our coasts into these like elite playgrounds where you have to be, you know, insanely rich to live there, whether it's Laguna Beach or Santa Cruz or San Francisco or La Jolla. Uh, and if we want to break down that sort of and make that more fair, you know, what do we do to do that? Yeah, but that takes nuance. I want to just be on a team and put my fucking flag in the sand. <laughs> the, it's the Democrats. They're the problem. Um, hell yeah, man. Well, where can people get involved? And uh, at, at Surfrider, you guys yep. are doing great work. Thank I'm involved you. with your organization. We appreciate it. And uh, yeah, so you know, out. 80 chapters around the country. So you know, we there's probably some group in your coastal community if you're on the coast. Uh, Surfrider.org has a, a link to all of those chapters. So get involved locally. Um, you know, you can support us through a membership. You know, right now we have about 50,000 members. There's three million surfers in the United States. Best guess, if we could get 10% of surfers to join Surfrider, we'd have 300,000 members. That would we would be a political force if we had that many members. So I'm trying to get people to join Surfrider. It's 25 bucks a year. That's like someone's weekly Starbucks budget. And uh, and so you can do that too at surfrider.org. Yeah. It's, it's a source of revenue for us, which is great. But more importantly, it's political power. So yeah. Bigger, you know, the NRA has got a gazillion members, and that's why they can unfortunately get away with what they get away with. And uh, if, if we can get a million surfers involved in some organization, you know, we could we could rule the coast and you already are man i mean before i let you go tell the trestle story yeah I, I think that a lot of people heard about that but maybe don't understand uh fully what happened the trestle story is another classic example of the power of grassroots organizing and the public's ability to influence decisions so there was a road planned a private toll road classic orange county scheme let's privatize the roads and make the drivers pay so we don't have to use taxes uh which isn't working, but um, this road was going to gut the watershed that flows down to trestles, um, and that watershed supplies sand and cobble, just like Malibu, just like Rincon. It's another one of these classic, you know, in, in the case of trestles, a couple different points, but uh, California Point Break built by a river mouth. So that watershed, not only, and it's also that water's clean. It's one of the only places you can surf down here after it rains without fear of water quality impacts. So this road was going to gut that watershed and end right at Trussell's. And so we were afraid it was going to destroy the San Onofre State Park, which it was. It was going to cut the park in half, get rid of a campsite, and pollute and destroy that wave. So we wanted to stop it. It was already on the map. Literally, you could open up the map, and it was like a dotted line. Road to be built here. And uh, it was a more than a $500 million project. And a lot of people told us, unwinnable. Don't bother fighting it. You guys will never stop this thing. Uh, the beauty of a grassroots organization is the people who are going to be impacted by that didn't care about reality. They were just like, I'm not going to let that fucking happen on my watch. And people started organizing. And, um, you know, the Coastal Commission ultimately had to give a permit for this road to be built. And uh, it... 
it was amazing to see the surf industry and the groundswell of support that came for this thing. They, we probably had about 2,500 people show up for the Coastal Commission hearing. It was the largest attended Coastal Commission hearing in history. And it was like, I call it the Woodstock of the surfing movement. There were people there in costumes. There were bands playing. It became like celebratory. People, you know, the community saw each other and, you know, the coastal commissioners, there's 12 of them. You need to get seven votes to get a win, you know, and and there was an all day hearing um, on the other side for the people representing the toll road there was a bunch of people that were paid by their unions to show up in orange shirts and stand on the stage and on the other side you had 2,500 people from all over the state you know the surf industry guys were taking their buses and vans it was awesome to see and you know Schwarzenegger was governor at the time he had already said this project's going to be approved he thought it was a done deal and uh because of the sheer amount of people and the media and the public and the pressure that put on the coastal commission uh, they voted it down. It was just this historic win. It then went up to D.C. It got appealed to the Department of Commerce at the federal level. Another hearing down in Del Mar. I think 3,500 people showed up, and we defeated that. So long odds case. You know, that watershed is pristine. That campground in the state park is still there. You know, trestles hopefully will be, you know, safe. And, uh, you know, we weren't supposed to be able to win. The odds were stacked up against us. They had all the money, but we were able to rally all the people. And to the credit of the Coastal Commissioners and everybody else, they listened. They were like, there's no way we can approve a project with, like, thousands of people here telling us that we can't do this. So it was a it was a great win. And really just for me, uh, you know, obviously one of the most iconic surf spots in California, but a real testament to the power of grassroots organizing. Keep up the good work, Chad. Thank yeah. you hey, thank so you. much for coming on the show. Um, and stay in touch, man. Yeah. I likewise. love all the work you're doing. Thanks, Kyle. That's our show. I'm going to play you all a song as well as a voice memo from a band called Weak Knees. I will link to their Instagram page and band page in the show notes below. If you are a musician and you want your music played at the end of this show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's info at kyle.surf, and I would love to play it. Also, if you want to send a voice memo in, you can record it on the Voice Memos app on your phone and email it straight from your phone to info at kyle.surf. Just let us know who you are, where you're listening from, something you're excited about these days. You're kind of addressing it to the audience more than me. Um, So... Yeah, whatever you want to say. You know, if you got a beach cleanup, if you want to send some uh, some words of inspiration, or just uh, let us know how you're doing. You know, if you need some help, whatever, um, send it in. I love playing these. Finally, this is an ad-free podcast, so if you get value out of it, please consider donating a few bucks a month. You can do that on my website, Kyle.surf, or just click click the link below this uh, podcast. says buy me a cup of coffee on patreon and i so appreciate all of you who do that if you don't have money to donate totally no worries um it also really helps if you give this podcast a rating it takes a minute to do it and uh what it does it it really helps um me get guests on the podcast because if they look and they see a bunch of five star ratings a bunch of people saying nice things about the podcast they're more willing to come on so uh it helps all of us helps me keep uh, bringing you these shows every single week all right 
get outside, get in the water. Hope you're having a beautiful day. And this is a message and song by a band called Weak Knees. I'll see you next week. Hey Kyle, this is Sean Lafferty. Um, I really hope you dig uh, this new song that we recorded. Um, it's from my band Weak Knees. We are a two-piece band from uh, West Philadelphia. And, um, you know, we're more like a fast-paced punk style, man. But I really hope you dig it and um, hopefully get some good feedback. And, you know, please uh, check out the links and, you know, try to find us. And hopefully we could do a show in your area sometime soon. Uh, thank you so much. I've always been a huge fan of your podcast. And uh, I'm trying to get my... my uh, friend ed who's in the band with me to listen to more of of your shows um because he suffers from depression and anxiety and hopefully i can get him i can convince him to take more of the holistic approach when it comes to treating some of these um issues because uh, i love him very much and he's my best friend and i just i just i just want him to be okay but uh thank you so much kyle take care Let it go.